Mallory is too much. Operation Kid Brother is too much for one mother. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. We are back this week to celebrate the release of Spectre on November 5th, the latest installment in the James Bond franchise. With me this week is my pal, John Trumbull, the biggest James Bond fan I know. Hi, John. Hi. Thanks for having me, Rob. John and I talked about what James Bond movie we wanted to talk about before Spectre. And we, you know, of course, there were so many good choices. And I could have picked Goldfinger. I could have picked Mm -hmm. The Spy Who Loved Me. I could have picked Mm -hmm. For Your Eyes Only, my personal favorite. Uh, I could have even picked The World Is Not Enough. But no, I thought it would be funny... Uh, in a move I'm now regretting, to <laughs> instead instead watch the 1967 Italian production Operation Kid Brother, which is also known as OK Connery, which is also known as Operation Double 007. You you know you're in for a good movie when it's got multiple titles. Oh yeah, um, you know that's like been a big mess when it has that many yeah. titles. Uh, this film stars uh, a bunch of people who have James Bond credits. There's Daniela Bianchi from from Russia with Love, Adolfo right. Celli from who played Largo in Thunderball, Bernard Lee who was M in a bunch of the movies, Anthony through Moonraker, I think. Uh, the, wow, yeah, Anthony Dawson who was in Doctor No, and Lois Maxwell who is Miss Moneypenny, and the star of this film is Neil Connery. Yes, Neil Connery. Neil Connery is the brother of Sean Connery, for real. And uh, whoever decided to put this film together decided they thought it would be funny, I guess, to hire the presumably more uh, cost-effective Neil Connery to star in their spy thriller. And around him is pretty much this sort of like all-star cast of James Bond veterans. Uh, This film is um, a real movie. Uh, <laughs> um, was, it's not something we made up No, it's not something we made up It's directed in, by Alberto Martina the, the plot is basically a plastic surgeon Played by Neil Connery And oddly enough named Neil Connery In the movie right. uh, Is blackmailed by, out by uh, the British allies He's pressed into service to prevent a gang of international terrorists From taking over the world And these terrorists Is the group called Thanatos Led by good name, good name, good name. Uh, led by uh, the the head guy, which is Anthony Dawson, and then his sort of next level down guy is Mr. Thayer, played by Adolfo Celli, and it's Adolfo Celli who's trying to kill uh, his boss and take over Thanatos. Right, and they're they're literally called Alpha and Beta. Alpha and Beta, that's right. So yeah, this is uh, yeah, the only reason I know about this movie at all is because it was spoofed on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Uh, I cannot imagine what their 
what they must have felt when they came across this movie. I mean, it's literally the perfect mystery science theater movie. But before, <laughs> before we get into the details of the plot, John, where, where you know where where do you come from with this? How did you ever hear about this movie? Is it the well, same thing with me? Same as you. I think most people of our generation probably first saw it and heard of it on mystery science theater. And yeah, it is. It's just the the word that keeps coming to my mind is bizarre. It's just it's one of those movies you look at and you're just like, how did this get made? How did this many people think this was a good idea? <laughs> it's a little stupefying in that way, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's very strange in that, uh, you know, he is Neil Connery, who kind of looks like Sean. Yeah, uh, it's, is... it's like they're marketing the movie to nearsighted Bond fans. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's it's what's it's weird is that he is he is Neil Connery playing Doctor Neil Connery, right. and they keep saying that he's the brother of their of their their number one agent, and they're well, calling him Doctor Connery throughout. They're, yeah, Sometimes they're calling him Neil. Like, wh- he wouldn't he be Doctor Bond? Why is he Doctor? Like that? That's the part that just makes your head hurt. And it, yeah, and like, why does he keep calling? Like, yeah, he's that Sean Connery's Connery. an agent, a secret agent, which means the Bond films were documentaries. Yeah, <laughs> just about how Sean Connery spends his time. It's it's really weird when you think about it. Yeah, I mean the whole thing is dubbed. Uh, Neil Connery is dubbed. They're all dubbed. Uh, yeah. they shot all this in Italian. The the further details of the plot is basically it opens up with Miss Maxwell, who is lo- again Lois Maxwell's playing Miss Maxwell. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing here. Um, yeah. She, uh, but, but Bernard Lee is Colonel Cunningham. Yeah, he's not called Bernard Lee. Yeah, I, it's completely bewildering. Uh, yeah. it, the film opens with her, and she is there to meet a, a secret agent. That agent is killed when the car is blown up by uh, Mister Thayer, who uses a remote control car to blow him up. They go and they find the murdered agent's girlfriend, which is a Miss Yashuko, played by Yoshuko Yama, of course, because her name is her name. And uh, she has got all this valuable information that they need. She is in the care of Dr. Neil Connery, a cosmetic surgeon, hypnotist, and then he takes... And Lois, lip reader. And lip reader. That's a big and part of archer. it. And archer. And archer. That's right. He's, he's got a whole plethora of unimpressive skills. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he takes uh, Miss Maxwell into, into his custody as well. Yoshuko is kidnapped from a medical conference in Monte Carlo by Maya Rafis, which is Daniela Bianchi. And as part of a plot that Mr. Thayer, Adolfo Celli, codename, again, codename Beta, from Thanatos. Uh, then it's the Secret Services Commander Cunningham Bernard Lee assigns Connery to find Miss Shishuko. There are all these various machinations. It ends up that Thayer has working on this super weapon that's a giant magnet, uh, which is going to destroy all the weapons in the world. And then at the end of the film, there's this big climactic fight with bows and arrows because nobody can use guns anymore, which is actually not too bad. Um, I thought that was a neat twist, honestly. Yeah, I mean, a, a giant magnet that's going to destroy all the guns in the world is no more ridiculous than the plot of Moonraker. Yeah, really. Yeah. But I, I thought, you know, that was. I don't know. It just uh, like Bond movies, they typically end with, you know, they're storming the bad guy's stronghold. And it was just a neat twist to see them going in on horseback and everybody with bows and arrows. You know, it it made it a little fresh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you listen to the trailer and then the, the trailer is what opened up this episode, they hired I forget the name of the guy who does the voiceover, but it's that guy. I, it almost sends a little like Gary Owens from, mm-hmm. La- from yes. laughing. I don't know if it is or not, but it has that funny guy voice. He's got that announcer voice. Yeah, and I think that they tried to sell this movie as a parody of James Bond because at the end of the year, there's too much for one mother and blah, blah, blah. Well, and it's kind of funny because that's a play on the the sales campaign for the 1960s Casino Royale. Right, right. Where they were like, it's too much for one James Bond. And then – so it's yeah, the tagline's like a spoof of a spoof. Yeah, it's very strange. But it's like I said, they're they're trying to sell this as a comedy, as a parody of James, but it's not really. It's it's not funny. It's not. No, they play it pretty straight. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not terribly well done, but it's not inherently funny. So I feel like they made it, and then they realized this really isn't going to hold up to James Bond level scrutiny. So okay, right. we'll call it a parody. Yeah, it's it's like a low budget version of a Bond movie. I like when I was watching it again for this uh, podcast. I, I was thinking like this is like somebody just described a Bond movie to somebody who'd never ever seen one and. Like, because it's got a lot of the tropes in there that you see in the Bond movies, where like you know he he bests the bad guy in an archery contest, and you know he's he's flirting with all the women, and there are like a few gizmos in there, but they don't get it quite quite right. It's like 
like somebody was just describing it to someone who'd never seen it, and they're like, well, I could show you a Bond movie, and they're like, no, 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 I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, know what to do. Yeah, I mean, Neil, Neil Connor is a character, he's not terribly dynamic, I mean, he's always sort of, he can fight a little, there's the, the opening scene yeah. with him, it turns into this big Donnybrook, but like, he's always sort of kind of, he doesn't want to be a secret agent. He doesn't want to get pressed into service. So it's like you're never you're never really doing well with it, having a main hero who doesn't want to be the hero. Yeah, you you, know? it's tough to really get behind him when even he doesn't want to be there. Yeah, uh, I mean, there but there are scenes with Mister Thayer where he's got a bevy of very attractive uh, hench women on his mm-hmm. boat, and they all wear little half shirt, little navy caps, and half shirts. And he's it's funny in this movie he's much more handsy with his yes. with his girls than he is in Thunderball. Yeah, uh, here I mean there's there's a scene of him playing a movie on the back of one of them, which they, I thought was kind of a neat in joke because like the Bond movies did that in their opening credits a few times. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's again like I think it's what you said. It's like it's it's close to a James Bond movie, but it just kind of misses. Like they they didn't quite have the budget or the resources to pull it off, you know. But it's it's an interesting failure, you know. Yeah, I mean the music is by someone named Bruno Nicolai, who I'm not familiar with, and Ennio Morricone. Yeah. I mean, so you know, there's some heavy hitters here, uh, and the poster, uh, which you can say just find on Google, is really very beautiful. Like it's a couple of really mm-hmm. nice posters. So it's it's not like there wasn't a level of you know real skill behind it. It's just built upon Neil. Con- just like it just makes your head hurt that that's, yeah, that yeah. that was an idea of getting the less known brother of, and I wonder how Neil Connery felt about that. I guess and, he was willing to do he, it. He's somebody who wasn't an actor. He was, I, I forget what his exact occupation was, but he was, he was, it was some working class blue collar thing, like a bricklayer. And like, he'd literally never acted before and they just recruited him into this. And I got to wonder, like, what were those conversations between him and Sean about? Yeah, well, you know? I, I did a little reading, and I, I guess this movie was was shot before they did um, You Only Live Twice, which was, like, uh, the last film that Connery did before he left the Bond series right. for the first time. And, you know, Con- uh, Sean Connery at this point was, like, very fed up with the, sh- the series in general because there was so much hoopla involved, and he couldn't really have any kind of life. And he, he was mad at both Bernard Lee and... Lois Maxwell, because he was like, you know, these guys are like exploiting my brother, <laughs> you know, and just trying to trade on my name. And uh, Lois Maxwell apparently gave him some attitude about it. And she was like, hey, look, I needed the money and I have a better part in this thing than I have in any of the Bond films. She does. And yeah, she gets to do more stuff. I mean, she's like an active part of it. She like shoots guns and gets out in the field, which she never did in any of the Bond films, I don't think. And uh, And apparently like... Sean Connery, late when he came back to the Bond series in Diamonds Are Forever, like four years later, he he learned that you know she'd kind of looked out for his brother a bit because he was you know such a neophyte in the movie making world, and he was like you know hey I was out of line, you, uh, you took care of my brother, you looked out for him, and I appreciate that. So they like kind of reconciled during that movie, which I think oh that's made. very sweet. Yeah. yeah, I mean you know. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of funny that, uh, that I mean, it is very sweet that Sean was looking out for his younger brother. That's a very mm-hmm. sweet kind of thing. And Neil Connor did go on to star in other things. He was in a movie called The Body Stealers in 1960. I obviously haven't seen any of these things. Yeah. But he was there, in a... There was, there was a thing, um, there was like a, a, a movie he did in the mid-70s, and I'm forgetting the, the name of it. It had Hong Kong in the title, and it was also like some sort of Bond spy parody thing i watched the trailer on youtube last night oh i think that's mad mission our man from bond street because he plays he plays a character called mr bond in that movie oh maybe that's what i'm thinking of so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna assume that that's what it yeah it's very very and he's it's funny he's neil connery is still around uh there's there's i found a picture of him on google and he looks very distinguished he looks even more like sean now uh than he did then i mean yeah like if if you haven't seen the movie like neil looks a lot like sean but he has a goatee and they even have like a, a joke towards the beginning where Lois Maxwell is like, oh, well, maybe if he shaved the beard. And he's like, no, 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 I'm keeping the beard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's weird because like from what I understand, Italian movies at, the, at this time, they didn't do any live sound recording. That was like the standard. Right. So it just dubbed the whole – they just shoot the movie and then dub the whole thing afterwards. And Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell are both doing their own voices. So they sound like themselves. When it came time to, to dub the movie, Neil Connery had appendicitis, 
And so they have an American actor dubbing him. And it, it, you know, so it sounds nothing like you'd expect Sean Connery's brother to sound like. Yeah. He has no hint of a Scottish accent. No, no, not at all. Except when you, the, the first time I saw it again was through Mystery Science Theater, you really do feel like it's like a fever dream because it's just, it's so yes. just off. It's just such a little off that you're like, am I really seeing this? And of course, again, the, the guys at MST3K had a, have a ball. Oh, um, you know, and I've watched that particular episode so many times when I was watching it without the MST commentary i still remembered where specific jokes yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> and well one of the things that's nice about it, and we're probably going to have to devolve a little into talking about the mst3k episode because they're just there is not a whole much more to say about it. okay connery i mean it's 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 if you're a james bond fan it is worth checking out just for the sheer completionness of it. Uh, the film has never been put on DVD. It is available um, on demand on Amazon. MGM mm-hmm. owns it. And it's a shame that when they did those James Bond box sets that they didn't throw this in. Uh, yeah. Because this would have been a nice little bonus just as like, a, <laughs> you know, like a what? Like Kind of like that Alan Arkin movie where he played Inspector Clouseau, you know, yes. from, from around the same time. You're just like. Wait a minute, there's an Inspector Clouseau movie that's not Peter Sellers? What is that? Yeah, um, yeah. But the MST3K, one of the things I really – I mean I, I always love that show. It's one of my all-time favorite shows. But one of the the, the episodes of, of it that I like the most are when they – obviously they're making fun of the movie. But they are not kind of mean – Sometimes they got a little mean. This yeah. one, this one, they don't have the. They really don't have any reason to be mean. It's more just goofy. The movie is just yes. so odd that they. The whole episode is very lighthearted as opposed it, it's to it's like, affectionate teasing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, and like, there's even. I actually watched the MST version after I watched the, you know, the the real version last night. And like, there's a sketch in there where they're like comparing Sean Connery's career with Neil Connery's career, mm-hmm. and they make you know they make easy l- jokes like you know. Oh, you know, Sean became an international superstar. Neil was selling light bulbs over the phone. And, <laughs> that is, and, yeah, they do. <laughs> and at the end, they actually take the time to say, like, hey, we have no idea if this bears any relation to the real Neil Connery. As far as we know, he's, like, living a very happy, fulfilled yeah. life in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> they also, like, make coy references throughout the film to, like, oh, well, your brother, when he heard about this. And, like, at one point, this wasn't wasn't a scene that was in the MST version. They're like... Oh, you know, what's his brother, that agent? He's like zero, zero. And then the other guy goes, yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're always just going right up to the edge of saying like, oh, yeah, it's James Bond's brother. But they they never actually do uh, for obvious reasons, I suppose. I have to assume that MGM bought this over time because Italy has a very, very um, different view of copyrights than Uh a lot of the world does. And so I'm guessing that they – the reason that they keep making all these coy references to James Bond without actually saying it is because they were very worried about the copyright. You know, I guess you yeah. couldn't – you literally couldn't put all these James Bond actors in a movie and then even mention 007. But then I guess at some point MGM is like, well, let's – we'll just own it. Kind of like that Fantastic Four Corman movie. You know, we'll just, yeah. we'll just buy it to get it out of here. Uh, yeah, then, or like I mean, they like Sony eventually bought uh, Never Say Never Again, right? Even though that was originally done by MGM, am I remembering that I correctly? Think that's, I think I think you're I think you may be right about that. Yeah, it was it, anyway. It was like Never Say Never Again was done by a rival studio because they wanted to start their own Bond franchise and they had the rights to like that one story. Yeah, the, Thunderball. Basically, yeah, basically Thunderball. Yeah, but they couldn't stray too far from Thunderball when they made the movie. Yeah. And and yeah, eventually, like the official Bond studio bought it up, so they have all the rights to that now. Yeah. Did, uh, now, what did you? You know what? Why not? Let's talk about it since you brought it up. What do you think about Never Say Never Again? Do you like that movie? Oh gosh, I haven't seen it all the way through in a long time. It has moments that kind of work. You know, it, it has a strange similarity to to like Operation Kid Brother in that <laughs> you know it's like not all the elements are quite in place, but. You know, you can see how a movie with that premise could kind of work. I mean, it's interesting to see Sean Connery as a like a slightly over the hill James Bond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and they they try to give a different take on on all the Bond tropes. Like, you know, M is adversarial, but he's adversarial in a different sort of way. Q is more supportive, but he's like a very underfunded Q. It's like a ramshackle kind of workshop. I don't I don't remember Money Penny in the movie at all. Uh, I think she is in it, but I, I think I, she's in it. I, I just don't remember what they're if they had a different slant on her or not. It was like the first time they did a black Felix lighter, mm-hmm. you know. But and 
but there are some other bits that don't quite work either. I, what do you think of the movie? I remember seeing it in the theater. It came out the same year as Octopussy, uh, which is yeah. – and it's, it's kind of funny that like when you're a kid – I don't remember having any confusion over the idea that there were two different people playing James Bond. I think I just accepted it. I think when you're a right. kid, you, you you tend to do that. You're just like, oh, okay, I guess that's James Bond. And they, there was the whole big, you know, the media made a big deal about it that, oh, which one is going to be the bigger success? And it ended up being that Octopussy was the bigger success. Um, right. Because like you said, they only have the rights to that one movie. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know what, what we're even talking about, basically. Oh, it's a long, yeah, convoluted story. The, the short version is basically... Ian Fleming wrote Thunderball, and if I get any part of this wrong, John, please correct me. But if it's like Ian Fleming wrote Thunderball, did it with some of uh, material given to him by this guy named Kevin McClory, and right. Kevin McClory basically came up with he didn't come up with it necessarily, but he helped Ian Fleming write Thunderball. So yeah, that, well, there was like Fleming was trying to get like a James Bond TV series. Off the ground. And this was like before they even did any of the movies. Right. This is like the late 50s or very right. early and, and 60s. So, yeah. Like Fleming got together with Kevin McClory and like a third guy whose name I'm blanking on. And and they wrote up like uh, some treatments for like, oh, these would be good Bond stories. And like the TV series never went anywhere. So Fleming, from what I understand, turned most of those into either Bond novels or Bond short stories. So then they make Denny, then they sell the rights of the film series. And it's a huge thing from the beginning. It's just a monster hit. They go on to make Thunderball based on the book, and then this Kevin McClory guy pipes up and says, oh, wait a minute, a lot of that stuff is mine. I own yeah. the rights to this. And he basically goes and he sues, and he wins to a certain extent. And mm-hmm. the rights get tied up for Spectre and Blofeld and all these things. And so for years— Because they were both introduced in Thunderball. In Thunderball, right. So for years, the Bond series— couldn't after I forget the list and they use Blofeld. I guess it's in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. They couldn't I use think so, yeah, because yeah, that's Telly's Files. Uh, they couldn't use Spectre or Blofeld in any of the other movies because McCrory basically said, if You're going to use them, you got to pay me some exorbitant rate. And they were like, Well, fine, F you, we'll go off our yeah. own way, we'll do something else. And then it got so contentious that eventually McCrory went and helped in, to get this other film made, Never Say Never Again. And then they went back to Sean Connery who had, of course, given up the, the franchise as of 1971, and mm. they got him to star in it, to, to appear in a Bond film for the first time in 12 years. And part of that was because the bad blood between the, the Broccoli family and Sean Connery, uh, he was yeah. kind of doing it as a thumb in the eye to those guys. And I can't imagine that in 1983 they really thought that they were going to be able to start a whole other series of films with and Sean Connery. And I can't Connery. imagine Connery being up for that anyway. Yeah, I mean, he was already getting pretty pretty long in the tooth by that point. He was like in his 50s by this point. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it was, the fact that Kevin McCrory was so like gung-ho about like claiming his right, I mean, look, I could understand that. If you find yourself accidentally with some rights to James Bond, yeah, you're not just going to give him up because you're like, my God, I just, you're going to do every damn thing you yeah, can to try I, and I hit the lottery, make something you know. But it yeah. but it seemed like such a weird, very um, self defeating philosophy that he had to just be so kind of adversarial with them because it's like again he only could use the concepts introduced in Thunderball, so it wasn't like he could do five movies with blow you know with Blofeld yeah, or whatever. Could, so literally all he could do would be variations on Thunderball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so Bond's always trying to track down a stolen nuclear missile in the Bahamas. That's the only assignment yeah. he ever goes on. Yeah, and so and uh, so anyway, yeah, they got him. They got Connery back, and the film was a, a moderate success. It's directed by Irvin Kershner, the guy that did Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a moderate success, and you know it remains just this weird little you know notation in the history of James Bond. Yeah. As does the fact that speaking of owning rights, the fact that DC owned the rights to James Bond comics for a full decade and didn't know it, and they didn't do it. They did. Like one, they did the adaptation of Doctor No, yep. which I think was originally done for Classics Illustrated. Yes, yeah. Like they came out with it, but the adaptation of Doctor No comes out before the movie, like like something like six months before the movie was released in the U.S. So it didn't. So the adaptation didn't do very well because nobody heard of the movie, and James right. Bond wasn't anything in the U.S. yet, really. Right, and uh, it is. It's a weird comic because if you look at it, it doesn't look. As you said, it was done for Classics Illustrated. It doesn't look like a DC comic. All the all the uh, dialogue is typeset. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't look like a DC comic, and the yeah. fact that there's no real mention of James Bond, I think, even on the cover. 
I think there's a word balloon where he calls him Mr. Boone, but it's not like it's James Bond and Dr. No. It's Showcase presents Dr. No. And you're like, right. well, what, what is that? I, you know, I mean, I guess if you're a kid, you're like, what, what's Dr. No? What is that? So, yeah, and the, the, so the big story is that that years later, some, you know, somebody is going through the DC files and they look and see and they notice that DC Comics, when they purchased the Dr. No book, they basically purchased the rights to make James Bond comics for the next 10 years and they never did it. <laughs> they so, had they had the rights to do James Bond comics during the prime time of Bond mania in yep, the 60s. Yep. For that entire decade they they were sitting on that and and they didn't even know. Yep. Yep, just that you know, that's why so, you need to have computers because this is why you, you, you is important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because otherwise this thing just sat in a filing cabinet in somebody's office. Imagine what comic book <laughs> DC comic adaptations of of you know, Diamonds Are Forever might have been like, oh my god, it would have been amazing. Or, or, you know? From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, oh, Thunderbolt, yeah, uh, you uh, only live twice. I mean, like all those were just the huge phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah, and, it's it really uh, remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and I'm still a little surprised that James Bond, for the most part, has not really translated the comic books all that well. I mean, in terms of yeah. like, there is no ongoing James Bond series. Uh, there have been one, you know, ad- Marvel did adaptations uh, of Free Your Eyes mm-hmm. Only, which is my favorite. They did yeah. one of Octopussy, but there really Mike Grell the- did a three issue series for for Dark Horse. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. And that was in uh, like late eighties, very early nineties. And I I love those. I thought those were very well done. What that are they? Was an original story. Oh, they, that's it was an original story. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there just hasn't been. And the same thing about like, there's never been like a toy line. There's been little bits here and there, but there's never been like a full on James Bond toy line. Maybe it's I don't know. Maybe they figure it doesn't appeal to kids the same way it does to adults or something. I well, I know they did like the vehicles and like the Goldfinger right. Aston Martin was a huge toy back in the day. Um, but no, there there never been like. You know, James Bond action figures, if that's yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why they've never, you know, yeah. you could buy a blow, a job and a, all that stuff. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's just because it's a lot of guys in business suits and it, it doesn't look very exciting. I don't know. Maybe. I would I would definitely buy a Telly Savalas as Blofeld figure if they made well, one. Sure. I, I yeah. know Mike Gillis would, too. He's his, that's his favorite. So you could do all the different Bonds. That would be super You could do fun. all the Bond girls, have you know, get yeah. Ursula Andress oh. in her bikini. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> you could do you could even do Neil Connery if you wanted to. You know, you could. You, you could do a little dead Jill Masterson, just gilded in gold. <laughs> That'd be awesome. See, <laughs> the, look at that. We're, we're giving Jill all these Masterson ideas for The Jill Masterson play set. <laughs> oh, it would be fantastic. So you could tell from, from, from the discussion John and I are having, we don't have a whole lot to say about OK Connery. It's <laughs> It's, it's fun. It, it, it is a wonderful curio. I would suggest maybe you could probably just get by watching the Mystery Science Theater version and pretty much get the gist of it. Um, it yeah. is available on YouTube, but it's it's like in an edited version, right? What the I watch it on YouTube in, in preparation for, for this, and it had a few scenes that I'd never seen before in, in the MST version. Right, There's they have a scene to cut those movies down for MST. Where Bernard Lee characters character Colonel Cunningham, he actually meets Mr. Thayer, the villain, this uh, art auction thing. And and there was also like an archery tournament thing, which is where Connery gets all the archery guys for the right, end of the movie. Right, 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 yeah. And there, there was like a little more with the, like a Thanatos meeting. And I'd never noticed, they, they Thanatos has like a cool logo. It's like a T superimposed over a skull. I saw it and I was like, wow, that, that looks really cool. That looks like something Alex Toth would have designed for Space Ghost or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 the movie is not without its charms. It's just kind of, you know, like, yeah, a, like a B-minus version of it or a C-plus version of a James Bond movie. It just occasionally does these, these very bizarre things like, you know, at one point they go to Morocco or someplace and they're they're like blind men weaving radioactive rugs. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how that figures into the plot exactly. And they're they're all the female henchwomen who they they at one point they hijack an army <laughs> truck. They we need to talk be. about that scene. Yeah, go ahead. That that is a great scene. A There's great a scene where like the 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 military is is transporting, you know, some big thing and the bad guys want to get it and and they get it by having all these women dressed up as as showgirls, as like can-can girls. And they're just standing there in the middle of the road. They lead all the soldiers off the truck. They shoot them with like, you know, poison darts. And then they all change into like skunk costumes. And then they remake the truck to make it look like it's from a circus 
or something. Like, like a giant casino. It's like a giant. Yeah, that's uh, it. Yeah, that's it. And, yeah. and the signs actually say Wild Pussy Club. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this odd Ennio Morricone music playing throughout. Yeah. Na, na, it, na, na, yeah, it's, na. it's Circus Calliope music. And you're and, like, <laughs> I mean, it like in the MST version, at one point, one of the bots just goes, Joel, am I tripping? <laughs> and it's a very surreal scene, just plopped right into the middle of the movie. And it's right after that scene, they cut to a, a meeting at Thanatos. Yes. And they're all just sitting around the table, and you hear one of Mike and the bots, one of the bots say, what the hell was that? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very enjoyable episode. They just shot a Bond movie with Connery's stand-in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that is okay, Connery. You said, a.k.a. Operation Kid Brother, aka I'm calling it Operation Kid Brother. That's the ty- that's how they sell it on uh, Amazon. So I'm going to call it Operation yeah. Kid Brother. And actually, they released it on the 25th box set of MST, and and they had to, I think, for legal reasons, call it Operation Kid Brother on that too. Okay, yeah. So, so it's Operation Kid Brother, otherwise known that's as that's the only Connery. like official DVD release it's ever had. I yeah, believe. or Operation Double Double O Seven, or anything else you might want to call it. So check it out on YouTube. It's it's really a lot of fun, John. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. For anybody who's wondering, next week, John Trumbull will be back (laughs) to cover Spectre. This will be our, yes, we're super, John and I are super excited to talk about Spectre. So so that will be next week. So uh, again, John, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I had fun. Awesome. And so uh, everybody stay tuned for these commercial messages. And after on the other side of that, we're going to have some listener feedback. So uh, we'll see you in a couple of minutes. Bye. We like to call the Sean and Neil Show Parallel Lives. In which we look at and contrast the careers of Sean Connery and his brother Neil Connery. The star of today's movie. Yeah, yeah. this line represents Sean's life. This one represents Neil's life. I'll give you an example. Uh, Sean's acting talent is discovered at an early age and leads to a long and lucrative film career. While Neil's talent for selling light bulbs over the phone is discovered, leading to a long life of menial jobs and aimless drifting. Well, up here is when uh, Sean gets his first million-dollar royalty check for the James Bond series. While Neil gets his first $65 unemployment check after being laid off from the cheese factory. Yeah, here Sean is declared sexiest man alive by People magazine. While Neil is declared the stinky cat man in room 4B by the other tenants in his SRO hotel. Here, uh, Sean calls the most powerful and influential people in Hollywood and is put through immediately. While Neil calls Pizza Hut and is told that they won't deliver it to him because of bounced checks. Here, Sean is quoted as saying, During the making of The Man Who Would Be King, I had creative differences with director John Huston. While Neil is quoted as saying, My manager at the Happy Chef won't let me off for weekends. What a dink, man. Here, Sean goes to Spago's and is seated immediately. Hmm. While Neil's hot plate malfunction and burns down his shabby furnished room. So, Joel, what about that point in the graph where Sean's line actually goes lower than Neil's? Hmm? Oh, well, that was the point where uh, Sean agreed to do Highlander 2, The Quickening, and ironically, that's when Neil had to comfort Sean. Oh, boy. You know, we should remind the nice folks out there that this is merely artistic speculation on our part of Neil Connery's life. For all we know, he's leading a prosperous, happy existence on a farm in Scotland with his beautiful wife and adoring children. That's right, Tom. Mm -hmm. And no matter what's gone wrong, with his life, Neil can always look in the mirror and say to himself, well, at least I didn't do Zardoz. Mm-hmm. Right, and so, Neil, wherever you are, we would all just like to say... Welcome to Astro City, a pulp to pixel podcast. An issue-by-issue ratings and review of the creator-owned comic book series Astro City by the writer-artist team of Kurt Fusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, pulptopixel.tumblr.com, through the iTunes store under the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel podcast webpage. Man, you come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.
delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a Hey everyone, welcome to the listener feedback portion of the show. This is where I get to catch up on all the comments left on various episodes since we did listener feedback the last time. So uh, we're going to start right off with uh, regarding episode 10, which was uh, we covered Psycho. Uh, Jose Rivera send me, sends a message saying, I just got through listening to the episode where you and Max Romero discussed Psycho. I am one of those people who knew about Psycho before I ever saw a single frame of it due to how popular the movie and that shower scene were. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had a film class in college, and they had us watch Rear Window, which is my favorite Hitchcock movie. But afterwards, I wanted to check out Psycho. I was surprised with how much I got into the story. My favorite line is still, I don't. That's how I get to keep it. My question to you is this. Are there any other movies you've encountered where you knew the major beats due to popular culture before you ever saw the movie? Thanks. Keep up the great work. Uh, thank you for writing in, Jose. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the only movie I've seen where I kind of knew most of what was going in was Casablanca. I didn't see Casablanca until I was in my 20s. And um, as I watched it, I was really kind of like, wow, this dialogue's corny. You know, it's nothing but cliches. It's nothing but – and then about halfway through, it, it dawned on me that, that, well, it's cliches because everyone took from this movie. So I, I, I was able to appreciate it differently at that point because I realized, well, no, this movie was not cliched at the time. It was, in, in fact – um, rattling off one iconic line after the other, and it's been 60 years of movie making after that that, that has sort of been copying from Casablanca. So um, that's about as close as I can think of in terms of, of things where I knew the beats. I guess the only other one, now that I'm saying it, is uh, the 1989 Batman movie. I was in my late teens when that came out, and I was just obsessed with it, uh, finding out every piece of minutia, and I ended up kind of ruining a lot of the movie for me. I knew that the Joker died, spoiler alert, uh, before I ever saw the movie. And so, um, and as much as I enjoyed Batman, I, I knew a lot of the beats going in and it probably lessened my experience. So I think at that point I decided never to go that level of like spoilery information again. I think I just decided, okay, I want to see some things, but not, not too much. And that's what I'm doing. Like with this new star Wars movie, I'm, I'm watching the trailers and that's it. I'm not reading articles about, you know, somebody leaked this or that. I don't want to know any of that stuff. So I think those are the, the two examples. Bradley Null wrote, uh, writes in and says, Two or so years ago, I watched Psycho for the first time. I had seen it hundreds of times. Uh, but other than the shower scene, I had not paid attention to the film. I was shocked at how good the rest of it was. Just me being a prime example of how the furniture status of this can be a problem. Yeah, it, it, you just sort of accept that it's a, of course it's a masterpiece. And then you watch it and you're like, no, 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 this really is a masterpiece. Uh, Anthony Durser wrote in, uh, MacGuffin, MacGuffin, me shouting at my iPhone while listening to the part where Rob and Max discuss how Hitchcock abandons the whole embezzlement plot in the middle of the film. Yes, of course, and of course, I think it was Hitchcock himself who, who coined that phrase, MacGuffin, that this, it's the thing that everybody needs to get but nobody really cares about. And Yeah, the whole movie, you know, first half of the movie centers around this money, and then, of course, it, it doesn't matter at all. Uh, Sean M. Myers wrote in, a great episode, and you even told me something I didn't know, Ted Knight. In terms of killing off the main star so early in the film, it's always made me think of the first Scream movie, which I love, because at the time, though not a major star, Drew Barrymore was a big deal and in all of the marketing, and she ends up dying in the first 10 minutes or so. I love the face that marketing that the marketing played into the expectation that she was the main character and then pulled the rug out from under us. Yeah, Sean, that's a great example. I completely forgot about that one. Yeah, that was a huge shock because she was sort of the biggest star in that film, and then to kill her off 10 minutes in was, was pretty amazing. And yeah, I like the meta thing of... of the marketing is part of that uh, pulling one over on people. So, yeah, that's a great example. Thanks. Thank you all for writing in. Uh, regarding episode 11, Mad Monster Party, which I did with Chris Franklin, Jose wrote in again, and he says, While the New York Comic Con this year, waiting to get into a panel I didn't want to go to, my sister wanted to get in. Very nice, Jose. I was seconds away from snapping. Luckily, I saved the latest episode of the Film and Water podcast, and my urge to kick several people in the back of the knee was quelled. Glad to help. I wish I had this movie growing up as it would have been a perfect primer for me to get to know the classic monsters. Growing up, my dad was either a mature adult who figured I could handle horror or was a maniac who let me watch whatever was on TV, so I got to see a lot of stuff I shouldn't have as a kid. Had this come first, I don't think I'd have half the emotional scars I have now. No no, no, no comment. Uh, anyway, thanks for writing in, Jose. Uh, Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks wrote in to say, I had to say I was kind of 
uh, bowled over when this latest Film & Water podcast featuring a Rankin-Bass production I'd never heard of. When I found out it was one of the stop-motion animation, one of the stop animations, it made a touch more sense as I tend to favor their hand-drawn animation. I grew up on their animated version of The Hobbit and feel that even uh, without nostalgia blindness, it's superior adaptation to Peter Jackson's epic mess and was lucky enough to see The Last Unicorn in theaters earlier this year when book author and screenwriter Peter S. Beagle was touring with it around the country. I do enjoy the stop-motion specials, but don't have quite the same attachment to them. That said, I now feel a strong need to seek this out. Uh, a bunch of people have said that they had not see, heard or seen Mad Monster Party until this episode and and, are, and uh, wanted to, to track it down. And that's the best compliment I, I can get because we just love that movie so much. So I'm glad that uh, people are going to go uh, find it. Uh, Joe Massaro wrote in to say, Rob and Chris, I enjoyed your show on the Rankin-Bass Halloween special. I'd never heard of that one. On a side note, here is a link to an article on the movie. Scroll down to the fourth picture and you can see that you two are not the only ones perving out over a busty puppet. There is a side-by-side comparison of Francesca and a more recently famous busty redhead. Uh, in that case, he's talking about Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. So, yeah, the, the, the comparisons are uh, quite striking. Uh, Neil Whitney wrote on my Facebook wall, he says, I like the show, just finished it, I wish it was longer, but I wish all the film and waters are longer so I get so into them. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for making part of my Friday workday a little more fun once again. No feedback this week? Frown emoticon. We'll have to write an email Sunday. Yes, well, Neil, as I said to you uh, on my Facebook wall, every fifth episode, I figure that's a nice way to keep up with the feedback but not uh, have to put into the work of doing it every week. Some shows that do it every week, like Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast, I don't know how he does it. I'm impressed. And I love that I like whatever comment I write in gets to be on the show the following week. But, man, that's just way too much work for me. So, yeah, around every fifth episode we'll, we'll, um, we'll do feedback. Uh, Chris Franklin uh, commented on this episode that he appears in, and he talks about how Matt Smith, like a doctor who was born to star in a Boris Karloff biopic. I'm not sure if I'm seeing that, but, but I, I trust you. Anthony Gerso wrote in again, this is another horror-related comedy, like Young Frankenstein and Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein, that I have to watch by myself because my wife and daughters just don't get it or dig it. Everyone loves the Rankin Best Christmas specials, but that love doesn't translate to this venture, unfortunately. Uh, he says, there was a traditionally animated prequel that aired, originally aired as part of the ABC Saturday movie, which also gave us da- Daffy Duck and Porky Pig Meet the Groovy Coolies in 1972. Titled Mad, Mad, Mad Monsters, it's a subpar attempt. I acquired my copy many years ago on VHS. I think at some point the rights may have been tied up with Golden Books because that imprint was on the packaging. Uh, regarding episode 12, a Murder by Death, McGillis from uh, Radio vs. the Martians, and the brand new Arnold Schwarzenegger show, Podcasta La Vista, baby, which is so much fun, wrote in. Love the latest film in water. As always, the enthusiasm for Murder by Death was quite infectious. I've not seen the movie, but I will definitely seek it out. The cast alone is reason enough. You mentioned the potential of a sequel while other analogs for fictional detectives team up for another mystery. This was done, in a fashion, on an episode of The Venture Brothers a few years ago. The show was a bit of a spoof about a middle-aged analog for Johnny Quest and a lot of the emotional hang-ups and neuroses he'd gotten from being a child adventurer. In one episode, Dr. Venture goes to his weekly support group for adult former boy adventurers that include Johnny Quest, now a middle-aged addict, the Hardy Boys, sort of crossed with the Menendez brothers, Robin, voiced by Patton Oswalt, and Astro Boy. Their therapist is murdered during the session, and they quickly fall back into their old habits, wanting to, to solve a mystery. Of course, to Johnny, looking for clues means stealing the murdered doctor's prescription pad. <laughs> the whole thing is a lot of fun and really highlights the insanity of children getting involved in crimes and matching wits with adults trying to kill them. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Thank you, Mike. That sounds like a, that does sound like a lot of fun. I've only seen a little bit of the Venture Brothers. It just didn't grab me, but that, that does sound like a lot of fun. Uh, Michelle Siskoid Albert from the Lonely Hearts podcast uh, refers to Murder by Death as the other Clue film, Wink Emoticon. You know, for years, I kind of hated Clue because everyone was like, oh, Murder by Death, that's like Clue. And I just thought Clue was so far inferior that it just irritated me. Um, over time, I've come to actually appreciate Clue and think it's really pretty funny. I don't think it holds a candle to Murder by Death, but I don't hate it. And in fact, I, I do like it quite a bit. So um, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a fun movie. And I wish, you know, that'd be kind of neat if somebody did a, a, an old Haunted House mystery movie again. I think they've tried a couple times with some other things. Gene Wilder did Haunted Honeymoon and there were some other things. But like an all-star cast in a murder mystery comedy, that'd be, that, that would be fun. I wonder if, uh, what that would look like uh, today. Edgar, Edgar Wright would be great to do something like that. But of course, I think Edgar Wright is great to do anything. Uh, episode 13, which was Creepshow. Jose Rivera once again. Hey, Rob. Hell yes. I adore Creepshow. Uh, he says, it's rare that every story in an anthology can be all good, including the bookends. They each have their strength, and like the guys kept saying in the episode, they all end when they should. None, none of them drag out. 
I love that you guys did the episode, and it's nice to know Derek had a similar experience with this that I did. Rob, I would have loved if your design for the VHS stand survived the ages because, wow, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I, I had it for years. I, I kept I haven't kept a lot of my artwork. Um, but that one I kept for a long time just because I put so much effort into it. But it, at some point it just disappeared. So I was really disappointed. I would have loved to have taken some pictures and, and uh, posted along with the show. Um, David Ace Gutierrez just sends a very quick comment. You are knocking it out of the park. Thank you, David. I appreciate that very much. Uh, Ryan Daly from Secret Origins Podcast and Dead Bothan Spies Podcast and Flowers and Fishnets Podcast uh, left a comment. I don't remember where he put it, so I did put it in the notes, but I remember that he said that he, he loved the show, but he took me and Derek to task for not mentioning the music. And we should have, because the music is terrific. It's suitably creepy. Um, I tend to not notice music unless it's really good. Like, I mean, obviously I know that John Williams' scores for Superman, Raiders, and Star Wars. And there's moments in Star Wars that I actually think about how much I love the music. But music, for whatever reason, just doesn't tend to grab me all that much where I, or I pay t- attention to it in movies. But, um, yeah, Creepshow is particularly really good music. So, yeah, we, we should have mentioned it. So thank you for that, Ryan. And then finally, regarding episode 14, which was the Dawn of the Dead slash Burnt Offerings double feature. Uh, my pal Chris writes in, I haven't seen uh, Dawn of the Dead in decades, but I did watch Night of the Living Dead with a group of Boy Scouts this weekend. No, seriously. After a zombie walk at a local state park, my son's scout troop took in the park screening of the Romero Classic. I love the idea. Like, that, that years ago, that Night of the Living Dead was considered, you know, really, like, outsider scary you know movies not for not suitable for uh for for regular people and then here we are watching in front of a uh, for some boy scouts that's just uh, the times here are changing he says uh i think it's interesting that romero has gone on record that the venus probe radiation was a red herring because if you watch the film it just comes out and states that as the cause several times the newscasters are pretty emphatic about it uh regarding burnt offerings he says this is totally new to me but you had me at oliver reed being a big hammer fan i of course think of curse of the werewolf but reed is amazing in the psycho inspired filler thriller paranoiac also by hammer that movie has some definite surprises and chills in it i gotta see that i've never actually seen that one and i need to because i love the hammer stuff he says i'm going to have to keep an eye on tcm and see if this will come up on the schedule big fan of dark shadows kolchak and curtis's version of dracula with jack plant so i think i would really enjoy this film now that you've had a pro like Mr. Smith on to discuss a film, amateur podcasters like myself will seem like sorry substitutes. He's referring to Richard Harlan Smith from um, Turner Classic Movies, uh, Movie Morlocks. Yeah, Chris, if you think you're feeling inferior, what about me? I felt like I was completely outclassed. Uh, actually, by both uh, my guests that episode. Mike Gillis really brought it for the um, Dawn of the Dead discussion, and Richard uh, did a great job on Burn Offerings. And I just felt like uh, having... Not a lot of experience with both those films. Uh, I really felt like I was sort of playing catch up a little, or sort of playing support, which is which is fine. Uh, it's nice to change things up occasionally, but yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, you know, Richard did a great great job, I said, and so did Mike. And uh, on Facebook, on the uh, Fire and Water podcast, uh, I'm sorry, not Facebook, Twitter feed, which is at Film and Water Pod, we got retweets from Radio versus the Martians, Trekker Talk, thanks Darren and Ruth, it's Plastic Man, The Hammer Strikes, Firestorm Fan, Coffee and Comics Blog, Richard Harlan Smith, DS and RS, Willie Arborough, Luke Dobb, Brian Mulvey, Anthony Durso, and Max Romero. Thank you all very much, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm really trying to get the uh, Twitter feed kind of to get like its own audience where we can have an ongoing discussion and, and we're getting there here and there. But uh, yeah, so I really appreciate everybody spreading the word of the show. That's how, you know, we're going to, that's how we're going to build the audience. Uh, Commander Blanks, AKA Frank had a lot of comments about the show. I pulled uh, just the one where he, um, I mentioned to him about that, that, you know, that, yeah, I, I tried to do something different with this episode and that these were two films I, I didn't have a lot of experience with, unlike say, you know, like the blues brothers or uh, citizen Kane. And I really wanted to kind of let the guests come to the fore. And uh, I said, I hope that it was entertaining. And he, Frank said it was. I've never even heard of Burn Offerings, but I was impressed by depth of into, info and context. So thank you, Frank. I appreciate you listening. And like I said, there will be some episodes where I'm, I'm going to have a guest on who's going to be more of an expert than me and just try and change it up here and there. Uh, as I said, if uh, you want to, if you can, please follow and retweet uh, whatever we're putting out at, at Film and Water Pod. Please use the hashtag. 
FW podcast. That is how I'm going to be able to find these comments and keep track of them because I want to make sure everybody who comments and retweets and gives the show some attention is mentioned here on the the feedback segments. So please, when you're mentioning the show, please use the hashtag FW podcast like you would for any of the fire and waters or power records or uh, I was going to say hero points, but you know. Uh, and finally, if you want to send us an email, the email address is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. And uh, that's going to do it for this 15th episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I really appreciate John Trumbull coming on to talk about Operation Kid Brother. He, as, uh, as I mentioned in the first half of the show, he will be back next week for Spectre. We're super excited about that. So, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks for the kind words. I've gotten a really bunch of nice comments about the show. And I deeply, deeply appreciate it. This show means a lot to me. And I'm trying to get better at it with every episode and uh, every, all the um, – Words of support I get from everybody it really means a lot to me. So, so thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we're just going to keep going on and, and hope you enjoy the show. So until next week, that's a wrap. He thrills me. He kills me. He gives me the feeling maybe it's love. He charms me. Seems to be the one for me. Ha, ha.